friends. Uncle Marv here with another episode of the IT Business Podcast. And today I have a very special guest. And when I say special, folks, you know I usually try to make all my guests feel special. But as the saying goes, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. And that is no different here. I have with me Chief Analyst Jay McBain. And you know when it comes to channel news, if Jay McBain speaks people listen. So, Jake, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for that uh, great introduction. That's first time uh, in my life it's, it's been that great. So, thank you. I'm sure not. People are usually reading off your accolades, including 2021's Channel Influencer of the Year, yada, yada, yada. So, <laughs> here we are in 2022, and I'm going to pick your brain a little bit. But first, Let's go ahead and uh, let a little bit of knowledge out to the people. You and I are both Florida men. Yep. You live right up the street for me. And usually I give a nice little weather report and it is typical Florida weather here. Nice and sunny and people can't see the screen here, but I'm looking, it looks like a lot of sun coming in your window there. That's probably true. And uh, there's uh, probably thunder showers coming later in the afternoon. Yes. Typical Florida, but um yeah, it's uh, 91 degrees today as a high, so we're, we're living life large. We are, and as you mentioned, that rain, we are in the rainy hurricane season, so what a joy we have coming up for us, although I haven't heard too many predictions yet, so hopefully it'll be a quiet summer. That's true. All right, so Jay, it's been a while since I had you on the show. It's been a couple of years. Most of that's my fault. Uh, COVID came along, and Stuff happened, and I thought, well, it's time I get Jay back on. I've heard you on a few other podcasts, and I thought, hey, it's time to catch up. And why don't we start with, at the end of 2021, you had put out your 10 channel predictions for the year. I think that's the second or third year you've done that, right? That's correct. Okay. So we're not going to go over all 10, but I did want to take a couple of them and see, you know, did things pan out? Have things changed? What's your thoughts? And one of the ones that really struck my my uh, my fancy, and it's I think it's number eight. Seventy six percent of CEOs think that their current business model will be unrecognizable in the future. Numbers don't lie, but that's a lot of people. It is, and that that's not just a technology statement. That is a statement across industry. So a month ago, when Ford, for example, started rolling out the F-150 Lightning mm-hmm. electric truck, it's the best-selling you know, car in America for decades. Right. You know, the CEO has been very clear that this thing is a computer on wheels. And to sell a computer on wheels and compete with a company like Tesla, which is also a computer company that happens to build cars, it's a co- totally different future for Ford. And as they talk to their dealers, as they talk about these new models, inventory list models, online buying, marketplaces, subscription models, consumption models, because you know that at Ford right now, the first product is this electric truck. And obviously they have a Mustang and other things and all their brands are going electric. The next thing is they're going self-driving. And then after that, probably within 10 to 15 years will be truly transportation as a service. And there'll be a SaaS company like all the SaaS companies that we work with today on subscription and consumption models. And the dealership experience and and how all this works is different. And they're starting to hire people from Microsoft and AWS and Google and Salesforce and other tech companies 
to run Ford now. So that's the car company story, the pharmaceutical story, the banking story, the insurance story. It all is coming in. 76% of CEOs is basically saying their future business model is to become a tech company and to move their revenue model into a subscription and consumption business, which MSPs did you know, decades ago. But you can think of all of world trade, all $94 trillion moving into this world and needing our help to do that. So that is something to take note of when we've talked about all these growing jobs in the tech sector. They're not really just the tech sector. They're every sector now. Well, they are. I mean, if you have an interest in technology and I have two daughters that are graduating law school, you know, they have basically they can choose any company who's becoming a tech company to go work for. You know, if you have an interest in cars, you can be that tech specialist working at Ford or Chevy or BMW or Mercedes or Porsche. You know, you don't have to go work for Microsoft or you don't have to start up your own MSP. You don't have to, you know, work, you know, in technology, the four and a half trillion dollar technology market to be in tech anymore. And that's what's exciting. So that moves into another point where you talked about the world is shifting to these new models. And you had mentioned two models, and we've talked about the subscription model, but we're talking subscription and consumption models. So it how, is. Do, how do those differ first? Yeah. I mean, so subscription is, is where the business goes first, where, you know, kind of like that Netflix model, if you can get $15 a month out of a consumer, you know, things are great. You can see Apple, the biggest growth of Apple is not iPhones or iPads or Macs. The biggest growth is their subscription services. These are very sticky. They're very high margin. And every time they put a plus on the back of TV plus or fitness plus or news plus, or, that's where all the innovation is happening. And it makes it for investors a very you know sticky model. But it seems like everything in our personal lives now and everything in our professional lives, our vendors that we've worked with forever are asking us for kind of monthly fees now. Um, but where that goes to is more of a consumption model. And for most of us, that's a better model because if we go a few months and we don't watch Netflix, you start looking at that $15 on your credit card each month and going, now that frustrates me. I, I would rather them charge me a consumption model. And I'm sure the people that are watching you know, six hours a night of Netflix don't want to be start, you know, charged consumption, but it seems like a more fair model. And you know whether you're selling technology, whether you're selling other things, you're basically taxing the people that are getting the most value out of it and the most usage the most and allowing other people you know, to come in, which is, another model is product-led growth, which is basically coming in for free and getting a basic set of functionality and, and things for free. It's not a freemium model where you're giving you know, just a few things and hoping they buy the bigger thing. You're giving kind of the product away until the point of where the value clicks the adoption goes up, the integration into their personal life or their professional life, the stickiness goes up, the habit forming goes up. And then at that point, the upsell, cross-sell um, examples are endless. And we all feel better that you know, we, we're, we're paying for something that we actually use and we're paying for something that drives value in our lives. Now, you said two things that caught my attention. Of course, you said Netflix and those subscription models because I... And one of those people where I would like to cut back, I've got a cable bill, Netflix, Hulu, Paramount. I mean, I've got all of them, I think, except yeah. for one or two. Um, 
and the wife won't let me get rid of any of them because there's there's something on each of them that she wants to have. And right. I would love to say, why can't we just pay for what we use? So that run true for me very, very much. Now, yeah. the, this this model that you're talking about, this free level of consumption. So I had a listener reach out to me just recently and ask me if I had heard about a new RMM. And, you know, there's a ton of them out there. But what caught my attention about this one is that it is free up to 100 endpoints, mm-hmm. which, you know, for most managed service providers, most people in the channel, that's not enough. But for a lot of solo techs and really small MSPs just starting, a free RMM for 100 endpoints is a lot. Yeah. And this company's no restrictions. So, I mean, I, so I see it happening in our industry alone. So is, is that a new thing kind of taking a jump from the freemium model? Is that just recently that that started happening? Yeah. So if you look at the software industry, for example, overall, not just RMM, uh, there's 175,000 software companies. If you look at the companies that invest in them, these are the private equity firms and the venture capital firms, begrudgingly for many of us uh, that get involved in, in some of our you know, smaller family businesses. But the, the fact of the matter is they're pushing every company right now into this product-led growth model. So back in the day, and we remember decades ago where we get the little freemium version and you could use like two of the little features and yep. they were limited and you, know, you had to click a bunch of boxes and it was just a frustrating experience because you didn't get the sense of what you were using and, and the value of it. But if I could come in today as an entrepreneur, start an MSP or start a IT solution provider business of any type, and I could get an RMM, I could get a PSA, I could get some security software, some continuity software. If I could build the 20-layer stack inside my uh, offering, my portfolio, and if it's a consumption model, there is zero barrier to entry. My first month billing is zero. And like you said, when you get, if 100 endpoints is the right uh, metric, I can use all of this portfolio and learn about it and, and, and really engage. Like that's the adoption piece and the stickiness pieces I'm talking about. Once I get to 100, I'm now making money from clients and I'm free to start paying you know, a reasonable amount for these different tools. I'm going to have to have at least seven different tools in my stack to run a successful IT business today. And if they can start me and grow me in a consumption model, I'm not paying out a big subscription model. I'm not being asked to sign a three-year contract on a business. I'm not sure it's going to really work. And like most entrepreneurs, you're going to go through three or four pivots to find like the perfect uh, business that, that you can really grow. Um, if I can do that in a frictionless way, and this is how the Salesforce has started. This is how HubSpot started. This is how Dropbox and Box. I mean, broader industry players started in this product-led growth model. And then, you know, you start using Salesforce like for five bucks a month. And then all of a sudden you're paying 150 a month and you don't know what happened. But guess what? Your business has grown to the point where you can afford it. Right. And you're taking that much advantage of it that you're happy to pay it. And you're happy with that vendor because they partnered with you early and you grew with them. And they didn't, you know, put stress on you early. And by the time you were making money, you were happy to, you know, cut out, you know, some of that margin uh, to, to, to those companies who helped you from the very beginning. Yeah, that's what I love when I, now I've been in the industry for 25 years, but I didn't really make the switch over to the managed services until around 2015 or so. 
So I was happy to find partners that were willing to, to grow with me, I guess is the best way to describe it. Whereas nowadays, I've talked to other providers that, I mean, they are hit with, if they want to get started, they've got to have a minimum number of endpoints and sign a three-year deal. Yep. And everybody, of course, and, you know, I try not to say too much except that, you know, for instance, the Kiseo Datto merger that just happened. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a fan of both in terms of certain products. I love the Datto backup products, which I use. I love IT Glue, a Kaseya product, which I use. But I have some other products that I don't use from either of them. And I've already gotten the call to, hey, it's time to switch to that three-year deal. And I'm like, ugh, that's frustrating. But is there a sense that partners in our industry are going to have to change a little bit with that. And the reason I asked that question is because you've, you've talked about partnerships being a, a whole new ecosystem that has to happen. It is. So there's a lot of friction on Kaseya, Datto, and others. I used to work at Autotask, so I was part of Datto you know, about 11 years ago. So uh, I, I know this really, really well. There's, there's friction in that, what we'll call that smaller, multi-hundred-person company that you're serving the channel, you're doing the community work necessary, uh, to build up, you know, a smaller company, but all of a sudden now you're talking about a six point two billion dollar acquisition last week. Now you're talking about a public company now going private, private equity, and things like that. So they really like investors in Wall Street love that three year contract because number one they can book it as futures um, and show the amount of money hanging out there for a potential investor to look at. That's pretty much locked, and you know they can actually start to ask for valuations that multiply on that three-year number. So all they're trying to do is grow whatever revenue data was into that $6.2 billion acquisition. I mean, that's what buys people big sailboats and private islands in the Caribbean and things like that. So financial people who don't care about technology are looking at technology companies as that way to make more money. And where this friction happens is you know, back to the actual uh, partner that they have that's trying to build a business and trying to do it in a reasonable way. And a three-year contract isn't reasonable until you're given this discount that um, you almost can't walk away from. And, and there's got to be something in the middle there. And I hope that in that case and in other cases, um, these companies keep pushing back on their investors and playing the long game and knowing that if they work on consumption, if they work on the long game you know, over the course of five to 10 years, and not on quarterly, you know, revenue numbers, that the businesses are going to be much, much larger if they take care of their customers, which which are the partners. And that's the key uh, with everything here. And, um, you know, the good companies are going to figure that out. All right. Now, I like something that I've heard you say uh, in the sense of all boats rise. Did I get that right? Yeah. I mean, it's vendors and distributors and partners, we're all part of the same $4.5 trillion industry. And for partners, uh, for solution providers and VARs and MSPs, there's a bit of inside baseball that, that we need to figure out, a little bit of money ball in terms of what are vendors getting pushed to do uh, by their investors, whether they're public or private or VC or private equity, you know, where are they taking their companies? These subscription consumption models and, and how to make money in them. They, they blow off these multipliers. And what are those multipliers when 
Microsoft's out talking about unlocking trillions of dollars. You know, in my little spot in the world, what's my little uh, opportunity to grab a little slice of trillions of dollars in, in services and in drag? Looking at these vendors as they're getting pressure. And here's what's interesting and what's happening now uh, since the last time we talked and what's accelerating, obviously, due to the pandemic, is they're looking at partnerships in six swim lanes. And this is important for the audience in that one of those swim lanes goes back 40 years. It's that resale channel. And vendors have paid at the point of sale since the start of time. That's where what they call the gross to nets, the financials, that's where the front and back end margins, that's what MDF and volume rebates and new customer bonuses and all the money we see on the front and back end all come out of this resell motion. Okay. And every company is now changing out of this motion. So you'll see now 12 ecosystem executives instead of channel chiefs. And these ecosystem chiefs obviously see resell as a really important thing, but along the customer journey, they see it evenly important as getting the customer to the dance, getting them on the dance floor, which is this initial purchase and a you know, subscription model might be 30 days and then keeping them dancing all night long. So from a vendor perspective, they care about marketing that 28 moments that a customer will go through before making vendor selection and how a partner interacts in those 28 moments. It could be this podcast. It could be a ebook. It could be an association. It could be an event. So all kinds of things that go into those first 28 moments is kind of like when you buy a car. It's a lot that goes into narrowing 365 kinds of cars down to the one you want to buy and walk on a dealership. And the same thing goes here is how are partners are looking to pay at the point of value instead of the point of sale. If you're doing key things with your clients that get them to buy a certain vendor, your vendors want to recognize that or what's called attribute that to you. And they actually want to share data with you at that point as well. Not in a way that you're uploading your spreadsheets of customers to them, but in a kind of a data escrow where you're uploading it into a cloud that's double protected, double blind. And in these 28 moments, in a post-cookie world where they can't just get the data anymore from Facebook or Google or others, they're, they're looking to invest in partnerships earlier. And if they recognize all the great work you do in your community and chamber of commerce and the stuff you're doing in local marketing, if they recognize that and they can see that they won the deal because of that endorsement that you gave early, they want to kind of pay you part of that uh, sale, but they want to pay you for your marketing. But then, you know, in a subscription model, it's all about retaining that customer for life every 30 days. You're, if you're doing managed services, for example, you're there every 30 days. You're literally keeping that vendor plugged in forever. They want to start paying you for that because that's just as important as getting the customer on the dance floor. It's just as important getting them to the dance they're looking at all three elements in their own organizations. It's marketing, sales, and customer success. And they're all coming to the epiphany that they can't do those things alone. There's on average seven different partners that work with customers through all those three different phases. And they want to make sure that they're paying at the point of value instead of the point of sale. And last thing I'll say about it is Microsoft earlier this year was the first to market with what this is going to look like. You know, First, they come out with a new commerce experience which basically has the subscription or consumption with the customer as a network object that can move beyond um, points of sale. So if, if that customer wants to buy from you and then a day later, they want to buy from a marketplace, a day after that, they want to buy direct, then they want to come buy from you again. It doesn't matter to Microsoft anymore. That subscription is its own object and it can move 
depending on how the money flows, it doesn't matter. They own that and they don't have to build a new one for every one of their distribution points. The second thing they did, well, they shifted all the risk to us, which I don't think is going to be a long-term thing that's going to su- you know, succeed through the EU and the U.S. government. Well, I was going to say real quickly, a lot of MSCs don't see it that way where you know, if a customer does a one-year commitment from us and then leaves and we're on the hook for that because we're you know, their, their point of purchase – a lot of people don't like that, but I can understand what you're saying is, you know, Microsoft doesn't care because the customer can keep their stuff wherever they go. But I'm going to ask a question from my perspective that, you know, as an MSP, what does that type of stuff mean for me? Yeah, well, it's important because, you know, back to my original comments about investors, Microsoft's, you know, the second biggest company in the world, two and a half trillion dollar valuation. When they lock that deal for one year or three or whatever, they get to show that future revenue as somewhat locked in. It further locks it in if they shift the risk of non-payment to somebody else. So now they're double protected in that even if that customer, end customer goes bankrupt, like in a pandemic or in a 2008 market meltdown, they're still protected because a partner may still have the wherewithal to pay for the rest of the contract after 72 hours. And so, you know, back to being a Wall Street decision, this allows Microsoft to solidify that future revenue and gain that valuation to go and try to compete with Apple as the biggest company on the planet. I, I, again, this is big tech and big tech has soured in, since the last time we talked in a big way. Governments are getting more involved and they tucked this risk transfer inside five big announcements. So it's a little bit of a shock and awe treatment where most MSPs haven't been vocal about it because they're still reeling from new commerce experience and the new point system. Right. So inside of those two major things, they did a price increase. They did a risk transfer. I mean, there was other things in this campaign. It was a very tumultuous start of the year. The channel chief of Microsoft just quit right before he was flying to Miami to do an Ingram speech. He literally threw up his hands and took another job. It was a lot. And, um, there's so much blowback in you know, so much areas. The new channel chief that they'll announce in July is going to come into almost an apology tour for the first year or two you know, out there uh, trying to you know, calm things down. But that being said, there's a lot to take from those Microsoft announcements in that 35,000 other vendors that we track, I think are now working on a point system to pay at the point of value instead of the point of sale. Here's a newsflash. There's no more money to be had. If they pay out 30% of the deal in front and back end margins, they're not going to double that to 60 to pay out at different parts. They're going to spread that 30 like peanut butter. Right. And they're going to look at getting the customer on the dance floor, doing that sale in a subscription model, which is only you know 30 days or one year or three years, whatever. That's only one part of this. So instead of spending it all at that point, assuming the partner got the customer there and is going to keep them there forever, they're going to start paying at those three different parts with that same money. And the Microsoft point system is the algorithm that they're going to use. So to get to 70 points now in a system that doesn't have gold, silver, bronze, but to get to that upper tier where you're recognized and you get leads and you know, you're kind of one of those named partners, the 70 points, I think every listener should go and spend a little bit of time on that algorithm and um, break it apart a little bit because two thirds of the money, by the way, is post-sale. They're moving points. They're moving money into different spots. 
than it's ever been before in the 40 years of Microsoft programs. And they now own the algorithm, kind of like Google owns the SEO algorithm, that they can maneuver day in and day out for whatever's important to them on that day, as they can measure and monitor and manage these different moments better, they're going to start paying their dollars differently for different things. And you can tell that the future of resale is going to be competing for less and less and less dollars, not only at Microsoft, but every vendor in every part of this industry. Mm. All right. Well, so I took you off track. You were about ready to go on to the second point there and talk about how, well, you were starting to say that this may not last going through the EU and the U.S. government. Uh, what was your next point you were getting ready to hit? Well, that was on the, just on the risk transfer. Okay, risk transfer. Um, you know, I, you, when we have the next pandemic or if we have the next economic <laughs> downturn, I mean, we're going through one right now with the stock market. Right. Can you imagine in your local economies in Wichita, Kansas, you know, having a big multi-trillion dollar company put all their risk on that small MSP that's serving that market? It's not going to pass for that local congressperson, that local senator. You know, they're going to come to Washington or they'll come to the state Senate, you know, with the with this, you know, this person helped me get elected. They were on my you know committee. They helped me raise money. And now this big, bad company out of the Northwest is putting all their risk. And, you know, now they have to claim bankruptcy because their client claimed bankruptcy and they hold all the risk. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not going to hold water, I don't think. Um, and it'll probably be the EU that moves faster than the U.S. government, as usual. But but in the end, um, there's no way that a average MSP, for example, that has eight people, should be holding the bag for Dell and Cisco and HP and Lenovo and IBM and Oracle and SAP and Microsoft and AWS. I mean, there's there's no way we're holding the bag for their subscriptions. Right. It's it's like Netflix putting the risk on you not paying on the cable guy in the white van that, that comes and services your house. It's just not going to work. <laughs> oh, what a joy. Uh, all right. So that was, uh, that was all based on the reseller channel. And you said there are six of these. Well, there's six different lanes and this is important because this is where the money's going. So if you look ahead at the tea leaves, um, the, the average ecosystem chief now, which is replacing these channel chiefs, these transactional channel chiefs, and all the big companies, Microsoft, AWS, Google, IBM, all the way down, have all hired these people. Interestingly enough, none of these people that have been hired into these top jobs that report to the CEO that make a million dollars a year, none of these jobs were put were people that have ever been on a magazine list of top 100 channel chiefs. Mm. So these are not transactional people. Many of them are coming out of McKinsey and Boston Consulting, and, and, and they have more uh, intellectual backgrounds than they do actually working in the channel, but their jobs are really to hire at the big side is to hire, you know, six vice presidents, one that manages technology alliances, one that, you know, does all the API integrations and SDKs. And as you build platforms, that platform business for Apple and Microsoft and AWS and Google and Salesforce and HubSpot and others, that's bigger than everything. So that tech alliances person is key. The next thing is uh, the strategic and business alliances, folks, building these big alliances with big system integrators. And, you know, again, if you're Ford building that Microsoft relationship, you know, that's that supersedes your product. And, and that's uh, different than, you know, earning 70 points in their point system. That's a big strategic alliance. 
when you're selling computers on wheels. But then you get into these marketing channels, these influence channels, the 28 moments. And if you know 24 of those moments are partners, who's running that show? Again, it's non-transactional. Those partners are not transacting with the customer or earning the dollars at that point. But that's a different vice president. The, the transactional one is changing as well. It's not just flowing indirect through distribution. It's not flowing through big resellers. Uh, it's not building out an SMB strategy. Marketplaces are going to be upwards of $25 billion in the next couple of years, according to our predictions. And it's going to take a big slice. It's almost one third of the US economy at this point. It's going to take a big slice out of resell as people start buying more on the big marketplaces. And there's 20 of them that we're watching. And so that you know, transactional chief has a lot of moving parts at this point, and it's not as linear as it was in the past. And so that you know, vice president is different than perhaps even today's channel chiefs. And then finally, the customer success. It's every 30 days forever. We need a customer for life, and we're going to be putting a lot of money on making sure that we've got partners that are out there every 30 days forever getting us that customer for life. So there's six swim lanes right there. And there's six vice presidents. What's different now is they're not hiring a bunch of channel account managers to come to your shop and, and, and talk about products. They're hiring you know, community leaders to go in and, and touch on all these different millions of audiences that do all these things. Uh, but they're also embedding all their people in the organization. So they're not building an empire channel group somewhere you know, disconnected from the company. They're embedding people in marketing. They're embedding them in sales. They're embedding them in customer success, in the product, in strategy. So the whole organization is now changing as well. It looks more like data science now with a bunch of embedded people across a vendor instead of everybody just reporting to some channel chief somewhere else. This all has material impact on the future of our companies and how they're going to quantify it and how they're going to pay for the value that we provide and clients and paying at the point of value, you know, before, during, or after that point of sale is going to become more and more and more important. And so we have to understand as well how the money flows and, and where we can find those dollars going forward. And there's way more dollars than there was in the past. It's just, they're coming out of different places. Right. So this all sounds like a book that I read back in the early nineties, right around when I was getting started called Customers for Life by a gentleman named Carl Sewell, who was a, I think he was a Cadillac uh, mm -hmm. dealership. And his concept of looking at a customer, not as a one-time purchase, but as a lifetime purchaser. And instead of looking at them coming in and buying a car one time, you want them to come back and back and back. And that's how I kind of modeled my business where you know, I wasn't going out looking for the quantity of customers. I wanted customers that would last for me. And I've had many of them, you know, I think I have my one customer that has been with me 23 years. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like our industry is kind of shifting to that as well to where, you know, we're not going to get the call as an MSP from a, from a vendor to get the sale. And then we never hear from them again. You know, they're going to have to work with us and create this partnership ecosystem type deal to make this all work going forward. Yeah. And what faltered with Cadillac, by the way, they had a model that worked for 50 years. 
you know, Chevy was the biggest car company and they had a whole demographic that was aging inside the Chevy product line. And when you get to the point where you start thinking about moving to Florida, when you start thinking about, you know, you're making the most money, you're, you're probably in your you know, later 40s, 50s, early 60s, you're, you're in that demographic. You literally buy a Cadillac and move to Florida. Yep. And every three years, you upgrade your Cadillac to the latest model. The buyer shifted in that model. And those buyers became disconnected from that just linear chain of upgrading within the product line. And so when the buyer changed, that disrupted Cadillac and almost put it out of business. And today it's kind of holding on. Um, but its future is, is a question is, you know, Chevy killed about seven other brands underneath, uh, underneath General Motors. So in, in today's model, now Cadillac lost sight of the 28 moments. And they understand that the buyer today is very much empowered and smart. And they don't rely on the salesperson at the dealership to guide them to Cadillac. They're reading Motor Trend. They're watching YouTube videos. They're talking to their neighbors and friends. They're on social media. They're jumping through 28 moments. And through those 28 moments, there's a lot of BMW and Mercedes and other cool stuff that when you reach that 28th point and you walk on a dealership floor, your chances of walking on a Cadillac floor are approaching zero because those 28 moments haven't involved Cadillac. And you're walking on a Mercedes dealership, you're walking on a BMW dealership or a premium dealership. It could be a Japanese premium brand as well, Lexus or something else. But the point is you're not walking on a Cadillac floor anymore because you're not your parents. You're not your grandparents. You're more empowered. You're smarter than they are. You know what the, how the engine works. You know how much horsepower and torque it kicks out. You know the electronics inside. You know that you know, these companies have invested in the whole experience. And you're not reliant on that salesperson because you already downloaded the invoice price. You've downloaded the back-end rebates. You've configured and priced the car online. I mean, you know everything. And you know within $100 how much it's going to buy. And you know exactly down to the you know, serial number what car you're going to buy. That was all out there and Cadillac never picked that up. And it's now after this book, you know, Customer for Life, it's now a cautionary tale <laughs> right. of not rewriting your book every five years after the early nineties. So does that say something about some of these big M and A's that are happening? And we talked about Dato Kaseya earlier. Uh, TD cynics was a big thing that happened. Uh, there are some others out there. I mean, is that a big shift that these companies are trying to address that or? Yeah, they are. There's two different examples there. So TD cynics, I wrote a, a report last year, which is a simple title, which are distributors, the future of distribution. Yes. And in that, you know, a million people read it. I think I actually delayed that TD cynics deal by a week or two for due diligence. Cause I basically asked 10 generic questions. And in those questions, you know, let's talk about subscription consumption models and do those really get consumed through distribution or do they get consumed through, you know, a digital marketplace? Let's talk about the multiplier effects. Let's talk about all these moving parts of millions of things going on. The level of orchestration necessary for a Kaseya and for other vendors, um, how much are they reliant on distribution anymore in a non-linear, more celestial environment? Distributions companies are large. A couple of them, like Ingram and TD Cynics, are both fortune companies, but they're the only fortune companies that my older daughters who are in law school don't recognize. They're bigger than Nike and they're bigger, bigger than McDonald's and Starbucks. 
But somehow along the way, they've never come out of hiding. And somehow along the way, they haven't invested enough to build a platform for distribution. Ingram has invested in Cloud Blue. They've built out things. And TD Cynics has a lot of money now in private equity to go build these things. But the level of orchestration necessary, because you're distributing bits now more than you're distributing atoms. The companies that are disrupting you who distribute bits as software eats the world, like a Pax8, for example, raising hundreds of millions of dollars, they don't have to buy distribution centers. They don't have to buy logistics and supply chain and 3PL. They don't have to invest in capital and credit facilities. So these 10 questions are all relevant. And these companies are all private now. So, you know, kind of without public scrutiny, they can go and do the retooling necessary. And I think they're going to come out fine. It's just there's a realization that they can't do that. Kind of like Dell went private for a while there to retool itself right. yep. and come back out fighting again as a $104 billion, 58% indirect company. But it couldn't do it in public. It couldn't do it in public markets. And private equity is starting to take. Every time you see some company go into private equity, it's a, it's a case where they have to go through a couple of years of retooling to come back as something that's partner-friendly and to ecosystem-friendly for the future. And I believe distributors are going to be able to do that. So is some of the distributor, uh, I don't want to say problem, but I mean, is some of that our fault where we've always wanted to keep their name behind us so that if we're going to approach clients and we're going to provide products and services, we're, you know, we're white labeling and we're not telling them, well, now customers know they can go online and they can go to Amazon and find the same part numbers that we're selling. So in a sense, Amazon is the marketplace for distributors now. And mm-hmm. we're, we're fighting that because our margin's gone. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So is some of that our problem in the sense that we, we're not being part of the solution? Yeah, it's not our problem. And it, it, the problem or the benefit was to the end empowered client. Okay. So if you look at distribution across any industry, I mean, I could talk about HVAC, for example, or, or plumbing or any other you know, distribution wholesale type of business. There's two things that they really owned in their industry. They owned the parts. So there was no ability to go to Amazon and get a heater for your dryer. You had to go through the industry and the seven levels of um, margin that made that $42 heater a $600 repair. And so they lost the parts to Amazon. And then they lost the information, this empowerment, in this case, to YouTube. So when my dryer breaks, I type in my serial number on YouTube, and there's literally a guy on there for a 10-minute video. I can take my iPad into my laundry room and press pause. He's basically saying, listen, your dryer only has four parts. Let me oversimplify this for you. Turn it on. Is it heating? No. Okay. It's a heater problem. Is it turning? No. Okay. It's either a belt that's broken or your turning motor is broken. Does the thing not even turn on? You need a new you know, um, circuit board. That's your four parts. Here's the four part links to Amazon. One's $42, one's $38, one's $32. You know, the belt is $17. And now when the part comes tomorrow, Amazon Prime, restart the video, press play. I'll show you the five bolts you need to take off. And then once the back is off, you have to take off these three bolts and then plug in this new thing. And by the way, your dryer, you just, you know, Instead of buying a $1,000 new dryer or a $600 repair, you just got out of it for $42. They've lost information, which has gone to YouTube. It's gone out to these 28 moments and they've lost the parts. 
So in that scenario, you've got to compete differently. But in an ecosystem orchestration, when when they're looking at a multi-level deal, lots of software companies, lots of hardware companies needs to be all brought together, integrated, implemented together. That's the value of what, what, what we bring. Uh, the point of the matter is that's m- over most of customers' abilities. And there will be a 10-minute video out there. They could go to Amazon and get those parts. To us, that's less important. You know, if they buy the parts from Amazon and they show up tomorrow, what we're bringing to the table is not the only access they have to those parts. They can get them, right. but they don't have the ability to implement, integrate, secure, make them compliant, make you know continuity around them, the data, the automate. So there's 17 other things to be successful as an outcome to those parts. That's what we bring to the table. That's the multiplier on top of those parts. We could resell them and make you know 10% margin or 20 or whatever part it is. But in the end, we're trying to make 200 or 300% of all those parts. And that's where we are. And that's where we have to move as an industry. That's where companies like Accenture and others are already there. They realize that you know, for every dollar of SaaS you buy, there's $6 of downstream drag, services drag. For every infrastructure dollar you spend with AWS or Google, there's $5.70 of drag. They're out building organizations. Accenture is now at 700,000 employees. They make an acquisition every seven business hours. All they're doing is buying up companies and hiring people to go solve these $6 problems. And while you know they're buying managed service providers or buying digital agencies, they're trying to buy up the whole multiplier. And so when they go in front of a client, someday maybe they'll be able to charge them $6 for whatever they bought at AWS or whatever they bought at HubSpot or Marketo or Workday or ServiceNow. It's all they're doing is skilling up, building up. And you know, as solution providers, we've got to look at that and, and think about the economics of what we do differently. It is a lot to think about. And I think we've hit on three others of your channel predictions without even <laughs> specifically mentioning them. They so, all come together. It sounds like they do, uh, except for this one that I'm going to ask you, and it's going to be a little bit of a, a sideway turn. Uh, you mentioned in one of them, 72% of U.S. tech workers are considering quitting. Yeah, so this was the great resignation that got so much play as we were kind of coming out of COVID and this return to work and this new future of work. Uh, right now we're on Zoom and the world you know, went to Zoom and things like that. And you know, the, the workers got empowered. Well, a few things have happened. One is that you know, we're in a very negative environment right now. So there's layoffs happening industry-wide. The millions of people were hired by big tech and stuff are starting to see layoffs for the first time. As confident as they were, as, as empowered as they were to run their own lives, when Tesla asked them to come back to work, your paycheck is riding on it. You either do or don't. And by the way, you know, six months ago, you could walk away from Tesla and go sign your own check, you know, go work for 20, 30 other companies. Ford would have loved to have you. Well, nobody's hiring at the same level. So the whole great resignation was this great moment of personal freedom that I think reality is starting to hit most people that we're still in this game. Unless we're an entrepreneur and we work for ourselves, when you work for somebody else, you literally work for somebody else. And their rules of the game are the ones you have to follow if you want to maintain that paycheck every two weeks. Um, so those 72% of people seem pretty empowered when that question was asked and everybody wanted to quit. And you know that if you stayed at the same company during the pandemic, you're making way less than the people that were hired 
you know, during the pandemic, they might be making double what you are. So everyone has to take an assessment of, of where they are and how much they're making and go to Glassdoor and go do their own research and make sure that you're, you're, you're in the right spot and getting paid the right. That's if you're not an entrepreneur. Um, but it's also for your employees. You know, there is more movement. I mentioned Accenture hiring hundreds of thousands of people. You know who else did that? Microsoft, Apple, Facebook. You can go down all the way, AWS, Google. If you want to go on LinkedIn and go and just look at their employee sizes and look at them over the last couple of years, each one of these companies are hiring hundreds of thousands of people. And we haven't even touched on Ford or pharmaceutical companies or banks, insurance companies. There is a great demand for technology people. Amazon's building how many warehouses down here? Yes. (laughs) They built them a bit too quick. So that guy got fired. But um, (laughs) the the fact of the matter is um, it is an interesting environment going forward in the future of work. Not something that I'm worried that 72% of my employees are just about to jet out the door, but how to work with my employees. The employee experience probably is becoming as important as customer experience. You know, how I drive great customer relationships is how I great, you know, how motivated and positive my employees are for working, you know, with me and in my company. And there's so many nuances to that. And, you know, even, you know, a few days ago, the Supreme Court added another nuance to that and something that companies have to address in employee experience and stuff like that. And you don't know what's coming around the corner. Um, so EX is now like elevated because of all this kind of future work and great resignation and everything else. Um, so again, one more layer that we have to be thinking about in, in our businesses. That is true. I just had a conversation yesterday with a client that was trying to, you know, they went through the resignation where people are like, well, you don't want me to work remotely. I'll go find somewhere that will. Mm-hmm. But now the employees are like, not everybody's willing to let me work remotely anymore. <laughs> so the, the, the tide has turned in that respect. So, all right, Jay, well, this has been a lot. And I think we're just going to basically say that everything is going to be a service at some point. The car you drive, the pharmaceuticals you consume, the banking that you do, every industry, everything you do in life. Go look at your last credit card. Every one of those companies that you spent money with is trying to figure out how you could pay monthly. And so in that scenario, when every company becomes a tech company, when software eats the world, every dollar of that software, every dollar of this new world kicks out $6 on average today. We have the skills. We have, in many cases, the companies with the processes. We have the structure built to go get those skills, get you know the mergers and acquisitions to go do what we need to do to ask for more of those dollars. Right now, if, if you're a managed service provider, you're not asking for enough of those dollars. You're doing more, you're representing more, and you have the skills to deliver maybe double or triple what you're doing today, but it might not be the buyer that you're selling to. The majority of buyers of cloud don't sit in IT. The head of marketing in many of your clients spends more money on technology now than the CIO, than the head of technology themselves. The head of sales, the head of operations, the head of finance, the head of HR, these are the places where those multipliers are happening. There's no mistake why other companies are buying digital agencies and buying accountancies and stuff like that because they're trying to get in front of these buyers and they're trying to chase those dollars that aren't maintenance dollars. They're not infrastructure dollars. 
they're much richer margin dollars around implementations and integrations and, and deeper business value items in those lines of business. And if you don't know who those people are in each of your clients, go to the guest book next time you go, because we can actually visit clients again. Look in the guest book. There's an 80% chance that everyone signing in to visit your client is talking tech. 81% of accountants are tech services companies now. 78% of digital agencies are tech services companies now. When they sign into that guest book, you think they're talking about marketing campaigns or you think they're talking about the financial ledger? They're not. They're building out a technology multiplier in front of those buyers. And that's where they see their future margin and their future companies. You, you, know, you don't have to compete on the financial ledger, but you can definitely compete because you own the network. You own the actual back end and the integrations that need to happen. You're the one that put in all that technology. Right. You should own the outcome of that or at least be part of the team. I mentioned seven different partners. You should be part of the team that's asking for double or triple what you're getting from each of your clients today because it's sitting right there. It's just not the same buyer. Well, from the perspective of we want the customer to come to us to make sure, yeah, you're bringing in all this other tech. How does that mesh with our existing tech? And if it's on my infrastructure, you know, let me work with the other people. Oh, by the way, why don't you let me do this part because I can? And you just, we just never found a way to talk about it before. You know, all those things that you're saying are things that we need to be considering, you know, not just who are clients are using for their stuff, who's coming in to talk to them, but who can we partner with now to be more of that pie? Yeah. And by the way, most of this technology is being delivered through a browser. So I don't need better networking infrastructure. I don't need more storage. I don't need more CPUs. I don't need more of the stuff. I don't need cables to be pulled here. No, but need better but, internet. But this, and who's going to These sell tools it? are coming through a browser, but every dollar they're spending on those tools and these are big, big companies now. When I, when I talked about the service nows and Workdays and Marketos and obviously Salesforce and HubSpots of the world, these are big, big companies. You know, Salesforce is now bigger than SAP in revenue. Really? Salesforce really? is bigger than Oracle in valuation. These are big, big companies now that are selling through a browser to a sales buyer in your client. And every one of those dollars, Salesforce, for example, kicks out $6.19 that you could be capturing some of it. The HubSpot is $5.80. Google is $5.70. AWS, we're just working on now. Microsoft's unlocking trillion. These are different dollars. These are multiplier dollars shoved through a browser that doesn't require any infrastructure. No hardware order from a distributor or Amazon. But that's the richness of this $4.5 trillion industry doubling in size this decade. We want to double or triple along with that growth, but we got to know where it is. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're still with us, and I bet you are, we just packed in a ton and we're just scratching the surface. So, Jay, I'm going to have to remind myself to get you back on more often. We could do this as an annual thing. <laughs> we could. We should, actually. I will uh, make a note of that. And we should probably do something in studio sometime when... Uh, when you're not, I can, I can come down the road and join you. That's true. I was going to ask you, I remember you were doing a little bike journey around the North America continent. Is that what it was? You were going up to Canada and out West and back. Did, did you finish all that? 
Yeah. So I'm Canadian. So, um, I, I play hockey is what I do to, you know, so, so I don't gain 300 pounds during the pandemic. I couldn't play hockey anymore because no one was allowed to do anything. Uh, the only thing I could figure out how to do is, uh, ride my bike. And so I went and started riding my bicycle up and down a one a here in Florida, uh, along the ocean. And as an analyst, you know, I'd ride 50 miles. I'd come home and I'd start putting it on a spreadsheet. I got to like weeks and weeks later, I'm like, you know, what? I think I made it a long way, hundreds of miles. So I just, you know, went on Google and said, you know, what's the flight from here to Toronto? I'm a Canadian. So it's like, okay, it's this many miles. I looked at my spreadsheet. I'm all, I'm almost to Toronto. So during the pandemic is kind of my way to get fresh air. And I, I looked at it and I made it to Toronto and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to turn left because my mom lives in Vancouver. And so I started driving, you know, 50 miles at a time in Florida virtually, but I started making my way to Vancouver. I made my way to Vancouver. I got to Calgary for Father's Day. My dad's in Calgary and my mom's in Vancouver. Made it to Vancouver. It's like, what do I do now? The pandemic's still going on. I can't play hockey. So I just turned home from Vancouver, you know, Seattle. And then, you know, how far is that to back to uh, Miami? And here, here I am biking back. So that's wow. the whole Forrest Gump you know, story of going across America. So I'm sitting here in my mind thinking, you know what? There's an opportunity. Somebody could have made a map, a virtual map for you. So that you could literally see on a map where you were based on the miles that you had driven. So jmcbain.com, J-A-Y-McBain.com. You can actually look and there's a whole section there on my biking tour along with other funny stories. But yeah, I did I did map it as an analyst along the way. Every time I got 50 miles, I kind of plotted which state I was in and what city I'm approaching and what holiday in I would be staying at if I actually made the trip. So uh, yeah, it it was fun to do. All right. So I probably should have done this at the beginning because the last time we spoke, you were with Forrester and you're not with them anymore. So you are now with Canalis. Did Mm -hmm. I say that right? You did. And uh, essentially, are you doing the same thing that you did before or are you diving more into a specific segment? Yeah. So for me, it's a big promotion. I I went to a smaller company, but a company that's 100% dedicated to partners and channels partnerships, alliances, ecosystems. So we're at Forrester. I might've woken up with four people that thought about channels, knew what we did and and things like that. And at a really, really big company, but just a small, small part of it where now I join over a hundred people that wake up like I do every day, fascinated about this industry and partner success and, and, and driving the future of our industry as it doubles. And I feel like I'm at a much larger company now and, you know, friendlier people that all understand but they understand it in Europe. They understand it in Asia Pacific and Latin America. And I get pushback on some of these predictions now because they may not be coming as fast in China as they are in Europe, as they are in San Francisco. And so it's much better research. It's a much more um, enabled team that, uh, that I'm connected with. And it's more value that Canalis can bring globally to partners and vendors and distributors and everyone in this you know, huge market opportunity. All right. Canalis is the leading global technology market analyst firm. And you are speaking or listening to Jay McBain, who I consider the EF Hutton of the channel. So uh, Jay, thanks for spending this time with me and uh, hope to have you back on soon. All right. I look forward to it. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Uh, For more information about the podcast, head over to itbusinesspodcast.com. Check out this episode and many others there. We'll have another episode for you real soon. 
But until then, holla. <laughs>